0: Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. I'm so excited to have with us today David Priest, who is going to talk about his new book, How to Get Rid of a President History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Thanks so much for being with us, David.
1: It's great to be here. I just wish I would have written a book that was relevant to our times. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, David, you have such a fascinating background, and we're right there at the middle of political turmoil during your years at the CIA. Talk about that background a little bit so that our listeners understand how unique your perspective is.
1: Sure. The most dramatic incident when I was there was, of course, 9-11, and that that changed everything in the intelligence world. And I was working counterterrorism before 9-11 and, of course, after. But I translated that into the briefing job where I took the president's daily brief downtown every day to my customers, as we called them in the intel business, who were John Ashcroft, the attorney general, and the FBI director, a guy named Bob Mueller. No one's heard of him since. Oh, Don't he's know not what in the news at
0: all these days.
1: Yeah. So that job is, it's the, the tip of the spear when it comes to intelligence. Why do you collect all this information? Why do we spend roughly $70 billion a year on intelligence to get it to the top decision makers to make better decisions, or at least help them to make better decisions? And that was part of my job, is to make sure that that information got to the people who needed it. In this case, those customers who back in those days, every day after my briefing, would go up Pennsylvania Avenue and meet with the president who had just received his PDB briefing. So that was my experience with the intelligence side of things and the subject of my first book, which was really about presidents behaving well. People who received intelligence generally using it, informing their decisions – And I thought I needed to balance it with this book, which is about how presidents break bad.
0: Yeah, it's a book about bad, 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 terrible presidents. And it's darkly humorous, which I take some comfort in because, you know, looking at some of these really extraordinarily troubled executives a century later – They don't – it doesn't seem as bad because we're, you know, out of the line of fire and things calm down and the systems are strong, institutions are strong. But let's just go through the premise of the book a little bit. You give all of the categories of departure for a sitting president. There's – you have presidents who are rejected by their own political party. You have presidents who their opponents – push them out. You have presidents who are so unpopular that everyone wants to get rid of them. Presidents who die, presidents who are assassinated. What are the other categories that I'm missing?
1: The main category, it's actually where I end the book, is the way the founders intended, which is you vote them out. When when they run for re-election, if you don't like the job they've done, you, you go to the ballot box and you say, you're fired. And that is the way I think 10 presidents have left office. That, that is, they were actually on the ballot. They got the nomination of their party again, but the voters said, yeah, we don't, we don't want you anymore. So that, that is by default the best method. The founders were very conscious about why they did a four-year term and why they wanted us to be able to get rid of presidents uh, through the ballot box. But sometimes four years seems like a long time. So there are all these other methods that people will use, including a couple in the Constitution, impeachment and a declaration of disability. But I tried to take a wider view in this. A lot of people are talking about impeachment. A lot of people are writing about impeachment. But it, it's not all about impeachment. There are other ways to disempower a president. I think
2: that's a great point. I came to this as somebody who studied history at the uh, undergraduate level, at the graduate level. And I have to say, first of all, it's a fine work of history as as, as I have I have ever read. But more importantly, to Elisa's point, and just reviewing it, when I looked at the title and started listening on Audible, I said, well, okay, this is a – how-to guide, but it's never been done. But then I realized, obviously, that it has been done and it's been done much more often. Talk about how you, uh, you know, one of the things that I thought was very interesting was we discussed the presidents in the 1850s and how they were sidelined. And just, you know, kind of start back there. You know, we can probably skip Tyler, but, you know,
1: the first one. People at the time largely did too. (laughs) (laughs) There, There are so many presidents that even if we know their names, and mostly that's because as kids maybe we were asked to memorize them for a class, but, but we don't know anything about them. And what I discovered in digging into their, their stories, there's a real good reason for that because a lot of them were bad. A lot of the 18, the Franklin, P- the
2: Franklin Pierce discussion, well, that's a tragic story. I would say depressed me.
1: Absolutely. Franklin Pierce, uh, president, uh, he was considered like the handsome man who would ride into the White House. He had a friend of his named Nathaniel Hawthorne, famous author who wrote a glowing campaign biography of him to help get him into the Oval Office. But after he was elected, just before he was inaugurated, there was a train derailment and he and his wife and his young son, whom he treasured, were injured. Uh, the problem is he, he and his wife were only mildly injured, but his son, well, he he was crushed and he was nearly decapitated. And it was a sight that haunted Mrs. Pierce for the rest of her life and probably the president too. And it led me to research to find out how much is depression a disability. And I found a study from 2006 that some doctors looked at all of the presidents up to that point, and they found that at least 25% of the presidents to that point had a diagnosable psychological condition, a disability, uh, generally depression, massive depression. That's something we don't talk about. We're better at talking about it now than obviously we would have been in the 1800s. But that's the kind of detail in history that I wasn't aware of just by knowing the names of the presidents. But it gave me a little bit of optimism, too, because I figured out we actually get through those times. When there's a president who undermines institutions, when there's a president who is not fully up to the job temporarily or permanently – We get through it and we survive as a nation, even thrive as a nation. So there's a note of optimism even in that dark humor throughout the book.
0: Well, there was one president, the portrayal I was very troubled by, learned a lot that I didn't know. And let's go to chapter three and listen to some of the audible audio of a passage that really resonated with me for not such great reasons.
3: The President of the United States was both a racist and a real challenge to get along with. He routinely called blacks inferior. He bluntly stated that no matter how much progress they made, they must remain so. He openly called critics disloyal, even treasonous. He liberally threw insults like candy during public speeches. He rudely ignored answers he didn't like. He regularly put other people into positions they didn't want to be in, then blamed them when things went sour. His own bodyguard later called him destined to conflict, a man who found it impossible to conciliate or temporize. But the nation's politicians simply had to interact with Andrew Johnson, for he had become the legitimate, constitutionally ordained chief executive upon Abraham Lincoln's death by assassination. Their path for managing this choleric man reveals that a president need not be kicked out of office to be removed from power.
0: Wow, pretty uncanny how much that reminds me of... A certain sitting president today and not in a good way. David, tell us the story of President Johnson.
1: Yes, Andrew Johnson, the first President Johnson, uh, came into office by a a historical quirk. Abraham Lincoln, when he ran for re-election in 1864, he wanted to have what he called a national union ticket, Republicans and Democrats. The problem was... Not too many Democrats were willing to sign on with the Republicans at the time. A lot of them had gone to support the Confederacy, but a lot of them in the North were actually opposed to the war effort. So he brought in Andrew Johnson, the one senator who did not walk out of the Senate during the controversy when states started seceding.
0: And this really was such a great idea in theory. Yes. But in practice.
1: It's the kind of thing that I, I've heard people talking about now, which is let's get a National Union ticket of, of two centrists who can get along, who can actually uh, – fight against the extremes and move the country forward on a basis of rule of law and shared uh, belief in institutions it's a great idea the problem was it involved andrew johnson and he was just a
2: bad man i, I was very struck by when you de- detailed how lincoln vouched for him and when members of lincoln's party had issues with johnson lincoln said no 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 he's okay he's yeah.
1: okay and but he wasn't around abraham too. lincoln has many qualities and the more i learn about him the more i respect him not because he's an idol but because he was such a flawed man and yet he still rose above it and one of his best qualities was that compassion empathy the the ability to give people a second chance and he definitely did that with Andrew Johnson because Andrew Johnson did not acquit himself well when he started as vice president Lincoln stood up for him but it just a well, few he was months literally later
0: really drunk when he started
1: it appears so it appears that he liked the whiskey a little too much <laughs> and he was babbling at his own swearing-in ceremony and people were looking around thinking how how did we get this guy so close to the Oval Office uh, the the funny thing is he became president just a few months later and he actually did a lot of things that Abraham Lincoln probably would not have done. And you had this – I don't want to say constitutional crisis because all of politics is not a crisis of the constitution. But you had Congress doing everything they possibly could to stymie this bad president. They were passing legislation that was later ruled unconstitutional as a way of boxing him in.
2: Well, and that was interesting about this too because to Elise's point, that – The characteristics you describe of the first president, Johnson, sound very familiar. The characteristics that you describe of the legislative branch sound completely antithetical to what we see now and what we see going on. Talk about
1: that factor of how that Congress took the lead. It was a unique time. You had more than two-thirds of the Senate, which is a very important fraction in one way of removing a president because if there's going to be an impeachment and a conviction, the conviction in the Senate has to be a two-thirds majority. But you had a two-thirds majority of Republicans, and Andrew Johnson was not a Republican. So if he was found to have committed crimes in the impeachment trial in the House or in the impeachment resolution in the House, you needed that two-thirds to convict him, and it looked like that could happen. Now, it didn't, but it was really close. Andrew Johnson almost got removed from office. That's a very different situation than now when the the Senate – We don't know the exact count on the seats yet, but 51, 52, 53, somewhere in their seats. Well, it doesn't seem like that's a body that's going to convict the president unless the special counsel investigation comes up with something that is so hardcore on the issues of criminal conspiracy or obstruction of justice that it's the tide turning in the way that we saw with the Nixon hearings when even Republicans said, Mr. President, it's time to go.
0: I've maintained throughout all of the talk about potentially impeaching Donald Trump, that the best way would be the way that you outline in the book the founders really intended for presidents to be removed by voting Donald Trump Mm -hmm. out of office.
1: You have good company there. Jim Comey said the same thing earlier this year. He was asked about, you know, you don't agree with the president on a lot. Should he be impeached and removed? And he said, no. He said that is a choice that is on the American people, and it's incumbent upon them to do it.
0: And at this point, what would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from studying all of these very unique and different scenarios in which a president was unfit for office.
1: Yeah. It, if it's unfit, which is a different category than unpopular or unable, if it's an unfit president, impeachment is the constitutional remedy. And that is not something to be avoided because it's difficult. And I've heard people say, well, it'll tear the country apart. It'll it'll put people into even more conflictual mo-. Okay. It's supposed to be that way. That's the whole idea. It is a constitutional remedy. Now, it is unlikely to happen for various reasons, but I think anyone who tries to remove a president and is focused only on one option is missing out because there are other ways you can combine these methods to restrict their activities or to put them on notice through impeachment, even if not removal. To put them on notice, you've gone about as far as we're going to let you go. If you go any further, then we might be able to convict you. Um, That's important to keep in mind.
0: Talk about how much job security the founders intended for the commander-in-chief to really have.
1: They were really conflicted because, remember, they had just thrown off the monarchy. They were very fearful of strong executive authority. They did not want to have a, a king with a different name. On the other hand, under the Articles of Confederation, they'd been operating under a government where the executive did not have enough power to function. And they had to try to balance that. How did they do that? Well, it took some debate, but they finally got to the point, we want a president. We want it to be one person and not a group or a council in the presidency. And we want them to have some kind of a mandate to act. Uh, They ended up doing that through elections mediated by the Electoral College of a four-year term. But wiser heads in the room also said we have to have a way to get rid of a president before four years. Uh, Originally, the term that they used was for maladministration. Then they said, well, wait a minute. If it's maladministration just doing a bad job governing, that could just be like a vote of confidence constantly in the Congress. We can't have that. So then they move to treason, bribery, and the amorphous high crimes and misdemeanors being the only reasons you can impeach a president. Let's focus on high crimes and
2: misdemeanors for a minute because I think that that's one of the most overlooked when people talk about impeachment. And Again, you know, I, I hesitate towards uh, Justice Brennan called original intent uh, nothing more than arrogance cloaked in humility. But in reading that, I say, okay, high crimes or misdemeanors—that's the spectrum. That basically says to me anything. I mean, a misdemeanor can be a parking ticket in Washington D.C. That- Gerald
1: but, Ford famously said in a, a 1970 discussions around a 1970 impeachment of a judge that high crimes and misdemeanors are whatever the House thinks it is. And there's some truth to that. There's nothing in the Constitution that defines high crimes and misdemeanors the way that the Constitution defines treason, which is very narrowly and almost impossible to imagine in the modern context, like requiring witnesses, which uh, sounds odd today. So they left it vague. And I think there was some purpose to that, to the extent that in a very hot, rushed summer of 1787 that there was deliberation about every phrase, to the extent that there was that, I think they wanted to leave future generations open to interpret high crimes and misdemeanors. I talked to some constitutional scholars for this book and the general consensus is that high crimes and misdemeanors means it has to relate to matters of state. That's the high part. Is it can't be crimes and misdemeanors about personal behavior. And that was what some people went to with the Clinton impeachment. They said, "Yeah, he he perjured himself. He was tampering with witnesses." But he was doing it to cover up a personal issue and while that's bad, that is not an assault on the institutions of the state itself. Therefore, it's not a high crime and misdemeanor. The crimes and misdemeanors language is interesting because that definitely tells you that unlike treason, treason and bribery and the high crimes, which are crimes, that there has to be something short of a crime. But if it's against the institutions of the state, then a high misdemeanor could actually be an impeachable offense. For me, right now, That means things like obstruction of justice and abuse of power, which have been named in impeachment articles before.
0: Well, in the obstruction of justice counter argument that Donald Trump is already teeing up is he just is a fighter. It's not obstruction of justice if he's punching back. So he's already teeing that up a little bit. You know, you dealt with the nation's most sensitive and highly classified secrets, disclosing an intelligence asset to a foreign adversary. I, I, how would that rank in terms of...
1: As a former intelligence officer, that chills me. That really bothers me. L- human lives are at stake at that point. And yet I could see how that would not be seen as an impeachable offense because the president is the ultimate classification authority and therefore the ultimate declassification authority. If he wants to announce something that is in a top-secret word document, it is instantly declassified merely because, as commander-in-chief, he said it. So that's hard to put into the category of a specific crime. But a pattern of behavior of doing that could certainly be seen as someone who's unfit for office and you could pack that into the high crimes and misdemeanors.
0: Well, the pattern of behavior also being the use of his personal cell phone from the White House residence and the security level of that phone. Something that has struck me is that almost six months after the summit in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin – no one really has any idea what was discussed in that private meeting. And I spoke to a U.S. senator who told me, nope, no idea what actually was discussed. At this point, within the U.S. government, do we only have knowledge of the discussion from what the intelligence agencies have been able to piece together?
1: I don't know what we know. I do know that the meeting was held in Helsinki. And it's possible that the Finns were involved in picking up something that happened in that conversation. I I doubt it. That would violate protocol in many ways. It may be that there was some exquisite intelligence collection on the Russians that we don't know about that gave us the, if nothing else, a readout afterwards from what the Russians said happened in the meeting. We don't know. There's only a few people who do know what happened in the meeting. But, But some people do know. And that is something that I have no doubt that if obstruction of justice is indeed such an investigatory area for Robert Mueller and his team, they're probably using all the tools at their disposal to find that out because that could be relevant to an obstruction of justice charge if there was something in that conversation that related to some of the actions Trump has taken.
2: Something we've heard a lot about in this discussion in terms of getting rid of a president is the presidential pardon power. And I ask you this because in your reading and your research for this book, I find that language interesting too where it says that everyone talks about it, including the current occupant of the office, that it is absolute. And it is not absolute. It says, except in cases of impeachment. Mm-hmm. And why I find that interesting is because the founders of anybody were clearly aware, even though we discuss impeachment and removal in sort of one breath, we people say, oh, he's going right. to get impeached. And people mean that to mean removal. They knew the difference. Right. And my real question about it is, is it the president's power to pardon people or a person who's impeached power or ability to be pardoned. I don't know which one it is. And maybe yep. it's something that's I think it's relevant here.
1: I would love to gather a group of constitutional scholars over drinks and have that discussion. And and I'll bet they would not agree on that. I think there's going to be some different interpretation, just as there is on the very issue of pardons. Some people say because that is an absolute right in the Constitution with only that caveat that the president can pardon anybody he likes and it is, there's no remedy for that And while it is true that the pardon will stand, there's nothing that says that the pardon power cannot be abused. You could have an impeachment article on abuse of power because of pardons being used for ill purposes. There's nothing to prevent that. That's the remedy for reining in the president overusing his powers or as Elise said, punching back you know oh I'm just a fighter. Okay, you're a fighter, but you have to fight within the boundary of the Constitution itself. And if you don't, that doesn't excuse your behavior.
2: One of the observations of the American presidency that I'm very fond of, of of all people, was by um, Nikita Khrushchev. And he said, FDR proved a man can be president for life. Harry Truman proved any man can be president. And Dwight Eisenhower proved your country doesn't need a president. And when you talk about getting rid of and removing presidents from office... Even even Khrushchev, that was the dawn of the nuclear era. Is it more consequential now when we sideline a president, remove a president, put a president in all these categories that at least went through with you um, than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 it's years?
1: Certainly 100 years ago. Uh, 50 years ago, it gets dicey because we're in the nuclear era. And I think that's really the main issue that affected it. If Franklin Pierce was depressed in the White House and he simply didn't do anything for a few days... The machinery of government, small that it was then, went on. But the commander-in-chief did not need to make instant decisions. And in the Cold War era, we have to at least be prepared for the president to make instant decisions. And you both know well the mechanism that surrounds the president, the bubble that goes with him wherever he goes, in large part for a doomsday scenario. Well, that's that's a different element. And having a president who is incapacitated matters a whole lot more. So one of the chapters I address in How to Get Rid of a President is about a disability because a disability in the 1890s when Grover Cleveland had cancer in his mouth and they actually went out on a boat in the Atlantic so no one would find out about it they tied him to the mast with ropes and did surgery and kept him out of the picture for weeks afterwards to recover you could do that then without a risk to national security i can't and imagine something like that now
0: by the point of even eisenhower
1: right eisenhower had three major health scares but even that didn't prompt a change to the Constitution to make a Declaration of Disability easier. Certainly, Ike was aware of the problem that a disabled president could bring because he reached an agreement with Richard Nixon saying, if I am unable to do something, you need to take over. But that wasn't in the Constitution. That could have been challenged quite easily because it was just an agreement between them. But even that didn't prompt people to move forward. It was John Kennedy. It was the dog that didn't bark. What if Kennedy, instead of getting a headshot that killed him almost instantly, what if he got a headshot that put him in a coma? And you have a president who may be in another nuclear crisis like the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you can't wake him up. What do you do then? That's why they came up with the 25th Amendment, to have a mechanism for dealing with that that had grounding in the Constitution as amended.
0: Donald Trump loves to say that all of these actions against him, the Mueller investigation, just one witch hunt. He is experiencing presidential harassment Presidents, of course, view challenges to their power unfavorably. But what of all the examples you go through in your book, who was the president who was treated most unfairly politically?
1: Yeah, fairness is such in the eye of the beholder. But (laughs) I think that the attitude toward uh, people like John Tyler and Andrew Johnson, uh, people who had Congress really going after them, Uh, using the veto power constantly, passing legislation against them. But it's hard to say they didn't deserve it because they were doing things that were often beyond the pale. So I'm not sure they were treated unfairly. For me, I don't know about you, but I like my government with three functioning branches, and I think having checks and balances makes sense. So when you have somebody who is, quote, treated unfairly because Congress is doing an effective job of oversight, well to me, that's not being treated unfairly. That's the system working.
2: I said we're going to skip John Tyler, but let's not skip John Tyler since you (laughs) brought him up. One of the interesting things I learned in your book was that at the very beginning when Tyler was the first president to ascend to the presidency because of the death of his president uh, from the vice presidency, (laughs) there was some debate as to whether that person would actually become president or be vice president, acting as president. Talk a little bit about that because that's a fascinating part of your book.
1: There was dissension at the time and there's still dissension now among historians and constitutional scholars. The original language of the Constitution sure made it seem like that the vice president would act as president in the case of – in this case, like a presidential death, William Henry Harrison passing away 31 days into his term – but John Tyler didn't read it that way. He read the language as saying he had the full duties of the office and he was, in fact, president. So what happened? He acted that way. And by insisting people call him president, not the term that some people tried to use, which was vice president, comma acting as president. Well, that's a long thing to put on a letter. So Tyler just didn't answer those letters. He, he would refuse to talk to people who referred to him that way. And then he just started doing what presidents do. And Take it till you make it. <laughs> momentum worked. Just inertia was, okay, fine, he's the president. And that created, in a sense, the, the template for what happens when a president dies, the vice president becomes president. So when the next one happened, it was actually just accepted that the vice president would become the president. Eventually codified in the 25th Amendment. They, they made it explicit that the vice president became president, not just acting as. But it took John Tyler putting it out there and saying, you know what, I'm gonna do this until someone forces me to stop and they didn't.
2: And you mentioned the twenty fifth Amendment, which as is, is incredibly consequential here and has also gotten a lot of play this year. Talk to us about the mechanism for that and is is that fantasy? Is that as currently constitutive, but even just in theory, is it fantasy that a majority of the people picked by the person who they would have to vote to sideline in whatever capacity, talk up a little bit about the operational reality of the 25th amendment versus our cable news discussion of it.
1: Sure. One one side of it is fantasy and one side is is clear reality and would happen. Uh, let me deal with the latter first. If there is a comatose president, if there is a president who cannot be woken up. I think that's an easy application of section 4 of the amendment, which is the one by which the vice president and a majority of the cabinet loosely or any other body that Congress designates, we'll come back to that, they declare the president is disabled. And I think if it's a case like a coma, that's really what it was designed for, and I don't think there would be much trouble there. So that part's reality. The fantasy is, well, the president is making weird decisions, and is is everything all right psychologically? And, you know, we're not sure whether he's really thinking through this the way a rational person would uh, Mike Hayden has made the case very well in, in his writings and, and speeches. This president is different than all others in that he doesn't seem to base his decisions on objective reality. Something that's important to this podcast is you make decisions based on truth. And this president doesn't seem to do that. It's more instinctive. It's more It's more gut reaction decision making. Well, is that a disability according to the terms of the 25th Amendment? Some people have argued absolutely from day one. Many people say you can't read that into it. That's where I think the fantasy is because the people least likely to judge, well, you know, his decisions are just kind of weird. The people least likely to say he needs to be kicked out are the vice president and the cabinet because it's going to look like a coup. And there's no way around that. So, yes, reality, if there's a physical disability that makes the president unable to function, it's a fantasy to believe that Mike Pence and a majority of the cabinet. Now, I did mention other bodies such that Congress could designate. That was in there. It's possible Congress could designate itself as the body that has to have a majority vote to go along with the vice president. It's possible they could create a group of doctors to be that group. But the one thing they can't get rid of is the vice president. Mike Pence has to say this president is unable to do the duties of the office. I don't see a scenario where that happens absent some kind of Massive physical injury.
0: Well, and just look at how many members of Donald Trump's cabinet have been willing to withstand incredible abuse and stick it out. They'll just stay in their job no matter what Donald Trump hurls at them, publicly insults them. Because at the end of the day, Donald Trump chose them. So do you really turn around and say, oh, this person who chose me for a really, really super powerful position, he's totally crazy.
1: You know, it's not outside the realm of possibility on the cabinet side. Because I go back again. And man, we're, we're talking about more than I ever thought I would. John Tyler. <laughs> when he when he came into office, uh, he alienated his own party back then, the Whig Party. He alienated them because he really didn't believe in most of their philosophy. He was a late convert to the Whig Party. Well, his cabinet ended up resigning uh, almost to a person. One person stayed. And in that case, yes, that's the president's cabinet inherited from the previous president who died. But in that case, if there were a 25th Amendment at the time, well, they might have voted to remove him for being unfit for office. There was no vice president because we didn't have a mechanism yet to select a vice president until the next election. But it's at least theoretically possible. Looking at the political environment, I sure don't see it happening. Not for a psychological reason, not for a question of decision making, only for some kind of physical incapacitation.
2: Now, your subtitle is, as we said, History's Guide to Removing Unpopular, Unable, or Unfit Chief Executives. Now, how many of the chief executives you reviewed were all three or even two out of the three?
1: It does narrow it down, doesn't it? Uh, unpopular is a hard thing to measure. It seems easy. What, you if you got a major- a
2: what if you got a minority of the popular vote, something like
1: that? There you go. We've had quite a few of those. Are they unable that, – that one seems to pro- – there's some difference of interpretation there, but unable, it's almost like an on-off switch. Uh, is the person conscious and making rational decisions or not? Okay. And, and we've had a few times when we've had presidents who probably were unable. Uh, we mentioned Dwight Eisenhower earlier after some of his health crises. Uh, Woodrow
2: Wilson after his heart attack,
1: right? Absolutely. For almost two years of his presidency, Woodrow Wilson was unable to make most decisions.
0: You know, Melania might be making some personnel moves at the NSC, but Mrs. Wilson.
1: Well, that's a scenario I I draw out in the the end of the book to say, can you imagine a scenario like Woodrow Wilson today where there's a massive stroke? The president is in the bedroom. Nobody sees him except for his wife, his doctor and a few family members for months at a time. And the wife and the doctor go out and say, everything's fine. He's okay. We are relaying his decisions to you, the cabinet, the vice president, all the others who cannot see him. It seems like in today's world, we would be all over that. And we would say, clearly, this president needs to be declared disabled. But on the other hand, if Melania and the White House doctor were to say, no, he's fine, is Mike Pence going to say, I don't believe you? Or is he going to give it another day to see what happens? Is he going to give it another week to see what happens? I find that that could repeat itself.
0: We've seen the incredible capacity of Donald Trump's enablers to let him break norms, to let him treat the press as if they are the ones who are privileged to have access to him, not as if it is a right of the American people to have transparency on the part of those they elect to serve them. It really is so scary. And that's why I think this is such an important book for the moment, just for people to read and to think thoughtfully and soberly about what all of this really means when you have a president who is all three, Mm -hmm. unfit, unable, and then uh, unpopular, which the popularity question I think is... The most easily discarded because someone can be really bad and still be very popular, as we've seen quite often in world
1: history. Absolutely. And each of those conditions, unpopular, unable, unfit, point to different remedies. Unpopular, the default is you wait to the next election and, and you vote him out. Unable, well, we have the 25th Amendment, and that's probably the dominant mechanism if someone's truly unable. Unfit, well, if you can't wait four years try the impeachment process or move to one of the more nefarious methods and obviously not recommending assassination something that's the use of force is why we're great as a country unlike most countries in the world we do not think it's an established norm that removing a president by dragging them out of the out of the uh, executive mansion or by killing them is okay it's not the assassins in history were not lauded afterward uh, they were they were reviled but There are other methods, like undermining the president while he's in office that you can do, even if impeachment doesn't work. That's an ethical slippery slope to undermine the president. You're undermining new institutions in order to try to defend the institutions the president himself is violating. So it gets really tricky. Well,
0: and it's the God complex that bothers me, the idea of usurping the democratically elected leader, whether you like him or not. So I don't know what the right ethical call is in that situation. I feel like it is... The president is the president until we go through the process as the founders. I
1: I made the argument recently on the Lawfare blog that that is a slippery slope that you really can't go down absent something like literal mass murder. If the president of the United States is about to enact the nuclear codes to annihilate 100 million people just because he feels like it with no national security justification – we would understand somebody who stepped in the way physically and prevented him from doing so. That person would then have to accept the consequences of violating the commander-in-chief. But I think people would say that that's an ethical dilemma that we can understand why somebody would do that. Short of that, if it's, I'm going to take a piece of paper off of his desk that's revoking a free trade agreement with South Korea, as Bob Woodward told in the book Fear, that is not killing 100 million people. That may be a policy you disagree with, but what gives you the right to make policy on behalf of the president who was the one elected? Once one person in the government decides they know better than the president what the president should do, where does it stop? Because there's a whole lot of federal employees who could be making that decision, and then you have chaos.
2: I was going to say in your reading of the Constitutional Convention of 1787, I don't think the staff swipe veto was discussed in those proceedings
1: at all. I did not see it. Ben, ben Franklin had some long speeches that he had others read to the convention because he was quite, quite old at the time. But even even Ben did not put that in there.
0: I would be curious if you have a prediction, if you were going to guess who you think is the anonymous New York Times author.
1: <laughs> My suspicion, and, and this is not based on knowledge, this is not based on talking to people at The Times, Uh, My suspicion is that it is not a cabinet-level officer, that it is not a senior officer, that it's somebody maybe undersecretary, assistant secretary level, which then raises some issues for the Times because running an op-ed like that with the impact they knew it would have, putting that out there when it's somebody who may have attended a few meetings or sat in as a backbencher in the situation room for some meetings – is a whole lot different than if it is the secretary of state or another cabinet official. And so there's a journalistic issue there about do you run that op-ed with its impact and claim it's a very senior government official. But I don't think it is a very senior government official. I just don't – the way I read this the tea leaves, I don't this is see what it. what
0: I have maintained because I've said – there are you know, 900 Senate-confirmed positions. It's probably someone in a national security role because to publish an op-ed that deals with national security in that way right. and for the person not to be at the NSC, the State Department, yeah, it's not or be somebody from the agriculture be incredibly department. irresponsible. You can't have someone, an assistant secretary at HUD weighing in like that. Well,
2: absolutely. And look, I, I go through this as, as a 32-year-old assistant White House press secretary. I was often referred to on background as a senior administration official in every major news. You've always been senior to us. <laughs> and then I was laughable to myself, to my parents, to my colleagues. But that's, to Elise's point, you know, it would be irresponsible.
0: When I think the definition might technically be someone who's senior, but if it's not someone senior in the definition of public opinion and what the public would understand, right. that's right. problematic.
2: In terms of process, and Elise – Ask you to make a prediction about the op-ed, your guesses to the op-ed author. I'm going to push you even further to make a prediction in terms of where we go from here. Uh, There was some great discussion in your book about the psychological value or social psychological value of an impeachment, even if there is no guarantee or no likelihood of a removal as a form of rebuke as an institutional. Talk a little bit about that, because right now I think that looks like as the vote stands today the most
1: likely scenario absolutely it's a meaning of impeachment that seems to have been lost in in our time and largely because of the clinton impeachment uh, bill clinton was impeached by the house but was not convicted by the senate and what happened during that process his popularity ratings went up and it was almost universally seen as a political win not the impeachment but the fact that he was not convicted was seen as a political win and people said, well, he shouldn't have been impeached because he couldn't have been convicted. Well, that's not really the, the idea that the founders had about impeachment. Impeachment itself was supposed to be a slap across the face, a way of saying, Mr. President, you've gone too far. You are shamed by this. It's hard to shame someone who doesn't feel shame. So we lose that perhaps with this president. But even if it weren't this president, I think we've lost that sense of impeachment being a big deal. People would immediately say, well, it's all about the Senate anyway. If he's not removed, he wins. That's not the way it has always been viewed. I don't know how we turn that around. Uh, I suspect we don't. I suspect that's why impeachment is unlikely to come up in the House soon. Anybody could introduce an impeachment resolution. We have many presidents who have had impeachment resolutions dropped against them in the House. That doesn't mean the leadership has to bring it up to a vote. Usually they shunt it off to the Judiciary Committee where it sits and sits and sits. In this case... Wouldn't surprise me if somebody, because their constituents elected them in this most recent cycle, to push back against the president. Wouldn't surprise me if some representative introduces an impeachment resolution in January and if the Speaker of the House does nothing with it until the special counsel investigation delivers something, because then there are actual possible crimes, high crimes, misdemeanors, like we talked about. There's something that they can attach it to. Instead of all of these things, which may individually be bad, may collectively be worse, but they're not specific enough to look like an article of impeachment that we've seen in previous cases.
2: You worked with Bob Mueller, and I was fortunate to work with Director Mueller as well. And one of the things that sticks out with anybody who's ever been in a room brief, been in a meeting with Bob Mueller, is how disciplined he is and how thoughtful he is and how careful he is and how by the book he is. Talk to us a little bit about what you think he will produce in terms of – and I'm specifically thinking of this debate around can a sitting president be indicted or not? There's been a precedent obviously where we've had an unindicted co-conspirator.
1: Let me hit a few different angles on this. Uh, one is about Bob Mueller, the person. And I think what you've said, uh, it, it describes the reality that I experienced with, with Bob Mueller. He, he does his job. He does it exceptionally well. And I'm in the camp. I, I, I despise the idea of Trump versus Mueller. And all the memes that are putting them as if it's some kind of a, a cage match uh, that feeds into a Trump narrative. And, it, and it's not reality. That's not what's happening. What we have instead is Robert Mueller leading an investigation to try to find what the objective truth is, to try to find out what words the president said and when he said them, because I've heard that words matter. Words do matter. That's what I've heard. <laughs> so I, I, I think that that is the, the context for the Mueller investigation my experience with him, I was briefing him after 9-11 with some very detailed information about terrorist plots, among many other things. What I saw him doing was was remarkable. He was operating at both the strategic and the tactical level, often at the same time, sometimes in the same sentence that he would say to me. He would be digging down for the important facts on an intelligence report and then connect it to something that we would talked about weeks earlier. And his ability to work at both levels clearly will serve him well in this, the most complex investigation probably in American history. But he also demonstrated integrity when I worked with him because there were many opportunities. Remember, this is a time when the FBI was on – it was a firing squad at the FBI saying, we're going to split you up into two agencies. That was almost – that was proposed and it was almost followed through on. Uh, Bob Mueller was opposed to that for, for some very good reasons. But there were many times when I briefed him on some information that in one way or another made the FBI look good. The FBI was doing amazing things immediately after 9-11 and into 2002. He could have gone out to the press or he could have somehow gotten that information out there to help him in this bureaucratic fight for the FBI. Not once did I see something from that briefing that I gave him in the morning, which had plenty of ammunition for that. Not once did I see that end up in the media. That, that says something. That says it's about doing the job. It's not about making himself look good or coming to some advantage. So, so that's one side of the special counsel investigation. You also raised the indictment issue. This is a funny one. My understanding, I, I am not an attorney, but my understanding is that there is DOJ, Department of Justice guidance saying a sitting president cannot be indicted. That's DOJ guidance. Uh, that's not settled law. So, so that itself could change. Even if the president can't be indicted, well, there are two things that can happen. You suspend the indictment until he leaves office, which raises interesting doomsday scenarios about if he knows he's going to be indicted as soon as he's out of office, what will he do to make sure he never leaves office? But there is another way that you can try a president for crimes, and it's called impeachment. If it's in the term of office, there is still a way to get at that, in in a sense, an indictment, which is the impeachment, and then – conviction in the Senate.
0: On that note, because that's really dark and I don't want people to think that this is a book that is completely hopeless. I think actually anyone who's anxious about the Trump presidency can read this book and be reassured that the institutions have worked and the system has worked. And that's why I think it's a very important book for the moment. And thank you so much, David, for coming in and well, sharing thank with you. us. And, and I'm artwork. glad
1: you ended on that note because that, that's where I get to. It's easy just to go dark and look at all these bad presidents and say, we're really horrible at this as a society. We elect bad people and these methods don't always work. That's one way you could look at it. I look at it the other way, which is we've been through all of this. And as a country, we've survived. We, we've thrived. Despite some of this happening, that should give us all hope that no matter how dark you think it is, it may be darkest before the dawn and there's always a new dawn.
0: Thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. We want to thank our partner, Audible. If there's a book you like, and we read a lot of them around here, chances are you can find it on Audible.
2: You can choose three titles every month, one audiobook and two Audible Originals that you can't hear anywhere else. You can listen on any device, anytime, anywhere, at home, at the gym, or running errands, or on the subway.
0: We put out some important and relevant titles like Steve Kornacki's The Red and the Blue, Tom Ricks's Churchill and Orwell, Born Trump by Emily Jane Fox, Profiles Encouraged by John F. Kennedy, and Columbine by Dave Cullen, all of those titles into the Words Matter Library. And Steve, tell them about our Words Matter special offer.
1: Right now, for a limited time, you can get three months of Audible for just 6 a month. That's more than half off the regular price. So get yourself to listening. While you're at it, think about giving the gift of Audible to someone on your list. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to 500-500.
0: That's audible.com slash words matter. Or text Words Matter to 500-500.
1: Audible, because words matter.
0: That's right, audible, because words matter.
3: Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.
0: Right now, I have to tell you about an amazing new service I found called FrameBridge. They make it super easy and affordable to frame your favorite things from art prints and posters to travel photos that are on your phone. I'm particularly obsessed with this service right now because I'm in the middle of a home renovation and have been trying to find great art for my walls, but it's super expensive to go to a store. And it's also quite annoying to have to lug around your poster or your family photo or your piece of art. So... You can just go to framebridge.com and upload your photo and it makes it a lot easier or you can put your special item in their own packaging and safely mail it in to them you can preview your item online in any frame style and they have a ton of options and you can also get free recommendations from the in-house talented designers then they custom frame your item and deliver your finished piece directly to your door ready to hang instead of all the hundreds you you'd pay at a framing store Their prices start at $39 and all the shipping is free, plus our listeners will get 15% off their first order at framebridge.com when they use our code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S. I'm looking forward to framing a custom watercolor of my overly spoiled Corgi Bobby sneakers and putting our wall on a huge place of prominence just because the dog doesn't already dominate our household enough. So you can follow my lead and get started today for the perfect gift for weddings, birthdays, or special events. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code WORDS to save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com, promo code WORDS, W-O-R-D-S.